all sorts happening. This Sunday, today, now, uh, we're kind of coming down the home straight, I feel, in some ways, of this vision and values series. Uh, kind of almost coming full circle in some senses, for like a 400-meter race. We've been running hard for nine weeks now, and we're coming down the home straight for the final one today. And in some senses, I feel like we're kind of coming back round. We're sort of completing the circle, almost coming back round to where we started in some senses, as you're about to see, I think. And um, as an eldership team, a new team, we talked a lot about what today would be about. We left it deliberately spare. Um, I love to plan, but I didn't plan this one. We left it spare to see what it was that maybe God was putting his hand on to maybe teach into or emphasize. And there's loads of implications of vision that you might want to talk about, that we could talk about. People might want to know about what about the building and this money we have, and what we're going to do with it, what's the vision, the strategy for purchasing a building. Uh, people might want to know about the, 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 the aspect or the discussions around men and women and the roles in the church and who teaches on a Sunday and so on and so forth. You might want to know about what are the plans for the church's 25th anniversary next year. All kinds of things that we could talk about and we as a team will be talking about and praying into. And if those are things that are on your heart particularly, we'd love you to be praying into those things as well and letting us know what you think God is saying about these various different aspects and implications of vision. But this morning, I'm not going to talk about any of those things because I kind of feel like God wants us to come full circle back to where we started on September the 16th and just really reaffirm and emphasize what we said then, which in simple terms was that this church, like any church, is designed by God to be a family. And we've kind of been digging into that on and off and over the last nine weeks or so. And the passage I'm going to just look at uh, over the next half an hour or so is Acts 2, chapter 42 to 47, which if you've been in church or a Christian for any time at all, you've probably come across. It's kind of the, the classic passage that often people like me go to when we're speaking about the life of the local church. Um, and I think God's going to speak to us afresh through it this morning. Patrick on our eldership team is always going back to this passage as a key one to kind of live in and dig into when you want to find out what a ch- local church should be, what we should be about, what we should be doing, where we should be heading. And that's what I'm going to do in these few moments. So it's Acts 2, 42 to 47. It's written by Luke. And he writes this. And they, speaking about the, uh, the first early church in Jerusalem, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Like I say, I'm sure many of you have read that passage before. It's a brilliant It's not a prescription, but it's a brilliant description of what the local church is designed to look like and to aim to be like. And I think you can see, I trust, that I hope through all of this series on vision, you've been seeing there's a biblical basis that underpins what it is that we're saying. We've been looking at John 4, particularly, the woman at the well, which underpins much of what we're saying about the vision to be a loving church family where we're known and loved, where we know God, where we make God known. And I think you can see also the the nature of that vision and the values that we've been looking at in this passage as well. We've looked at four E's over the last four weeks, four values that we wanted to accompany us and define us on the way to being more and more a church that know God are known and loved and make God known. I think you can see those at work here. 
kind of quite a nice values summary in some respects in this passage as we come down the home straight of this series. Our four E's, in case you've forgotten, we want to be a people who are committed to exploration, to encountering, to being empowered, and to engaging. And you can see that happening here in terms of exploration. This is clearly a church family that are committed to helping people begin to explore the claims of Jesus in order that they might come to faith in Jesus. We know that because people are being added to their number day by day. So they must be doing something in terms of helping people to take steps towards the claims and reality of Jesus. But they themselves are also explorers. As believers, they are explorers. How do we know that? Well, verse 42, it says they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. For our context, the word of God. Specifically, the gospel, the accomplishments of Jesus. More broadly, the word of God, they're devoted to it. It doesn't say they're familiar with the apostles' teaching or they are adherents to it, or they've learned all of that and now moved on to something more mature. It says they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the word of God. In other words, they're mining it for all it's worth, never tiring of exploring the wonder and depth and breadth of the love of God as expressed through the gospel. They're explorers. Secondly, they are encounterers, clearly. They obviously know what it is to personally and corporately encounter God personally and tangibly in the sense of experiencing him, relating to him, hearing from him. I love what it says in verse uh, 43. It says, all came upon every soul. Every soul. All came upon them. If all is anything, it's an encountering word, isn't it? Awe is what we want to experience more and more. If you genuinely relate to, commune with, hear from the living God, the supreme God of the universe, then awe is what you should expect when you encounter him. That's what we want to be hungry for as well. Awesome encounters. Thirdly, there are people who are clearly empowered. Are they not? They're seeing signs and wonders. Verse 43. Miracles, gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're empowered by the Spirit. See people healed. See people set free. They're clearly empowered by the fruit of the Spirit as well. How do we know that? Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not able to to literally count my possessions as yours, which they seem to be doing, without being empowered by the fruit of the Spirit. I need a supernatural love from the Holy Spirit to be flowing through me to be that generous, to say, well, everything I have is from God ultimately, so it's as much mine as it is yours. That's, that's That's an empowered way of living. Can't do that on our own. And fourthly, they're engaging with their city. We're told at the end that they had the favor of all the people. There's something about them. They know they are there to minister the justice and the love and the mercy. And for our purposes, specifically the adopting heart of God to their city. And they have favor with the people. It's only a hint there, but we know from extra-biblical history that throughout the first century, time and again, historians report that so often it was the Christians in the Roman Empire who were the ones who were caring for the poor, who were adopting the orphan, who were protecting the widow, just as God always said. I've read a couple of just, uh, secular philosophers this week. Um, uh, I forget his first name, but Ferry is his surname. And he was saying from a secular point of view, this, um, the construction of human rights that we hold right, quite rightly so dearly, particularly in the West, you just can't have human rights from a, a, a completely secular underpinning. It, it comes from a uniquely Christian worldview, he was saying. Because in the first century, you get a reversal of people's thinking that, that mankind, there's not a hierarchy of worth and value according to your power and strength. 
that actually the worldview changes through Christianity and actually every single human being, regardless of their power and strength and greatness and contribution and intellect, is made in the image of God and therefore is equally worthy of value and honor and protection. That's where we get our human rights from because these people began to engage with their city and to minister the mercy and the justice of God. So they're exploring, they're encountering, they're empowered and they're engaging. In other words, they are knowing God and they are making God known, just as we want to continue to do and to grow in. And they're doing that together. They're doing that together. You get the sense pretty clearly. They are not knowing God and making God known. They're not exploring, encountering, being empowered and engaging as like solo, individual Christians who occasionally cross paths on a Sunday. Did you get the sense that it was very different from that? They're a community uh, joined together in a, like a close familial unit. They're a family in which each person is known and loved to use the third component of our vision language. And that's my focus for these next few minutes, is to particularly to come full circle from two months ago and say, what does it mean, again, to be a church family in which each one of us, whether you've been here for 25 years since the beginning, in 93, 94, or whether it's our first time here this morning and we're just looking in to see whether this might be a family we want to join, what does it mean to be a church family? Look again at the language, please, of verse 42. It says they're devoted not just to knowing the word of God, but to the fellowship. They're devoted to each other. Like fellowship's a bit of a funny word. I guess you don't hear it much, do you, in kind of common vernacular and common language, maybe the fellowship of the ring, perhaps, in the first volume of Lord of the Rings. And that gets at something of their language, I think, because you've got those nine very different people, if they're even people, four hobbits, two men, one elf, one dwarf, and one wizard, but united in a common purpose, setting out on an adventure with a common purpose, a common unity. They want to destroy the forces of evil. They need to endure suffering and they want to usher in an age and a future of peace and hope. Sound familiar? There's something there, the fellowship that I think uh, Luke is tapping into. But the biblical significance of fellowship goes even further than that. The Apostle John uses the same Greek word that Luke uses for fellowship in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3. And he writes this, that which we have seen and heard, this is John, who saw Jesus for himself, saw the risen Jesus for himself. He says, writing to an early church like ours, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, the gospel of Jesus, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship, same word, same Greek word, is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. In other words, John's saying something pretty significant. He's saying the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done, the way to the Father, as we heard during worship, that doesn't only unite you to the Father and the Son and the Spirit in an incredible relational unity. It also unites you to your fellow believers in an incredible relational unity. He uses the same word, fellowship. A fellowship as a believer in the Trinity, Father, Son, Spirit, in me, within me. And, and the fellowship with my fellow believers. Using the same word to, to demarcate a significant relational unity between brothers and sisters in Christ. And you get a sense from these people who are devoted to the fellowship, don't you? That everyone's included. Everyone's valued. 
They're exploring the gospel together. They're worshiping together, praising God together, it says. Meeting one another's needs together, eating together. In other words, in this church family, there's a seat at the table for everyone. Everyone gets to take a seat at the table. Let me explain what I mean by that. A number of years ago, a lot of years ago, when I was about 11, my best friend, his name was Stephen Carter, and we were kind of best mates between about 8 and 13, and uh, we used to kind of basically enact a kind of a similar ritual most weeks, usually on a Thursday. I would love to go back to his house after school, as I'm sure you did with your schoolmates. Went back to his house after school, and uh, sure enough, pretty much the same ritual would unfold. Stage one was to get back to the house at about four o'clock, and his mum would say to me, Philip, would you like to stay for tea this evening? And I would say, oh, thank you, Mrs. Carter, that's okay, I'm having tea with my parents this evening, thank you very much for asking. And then we'd go upstairs, and the next part of the ritual would continue, and we'd play on a Sega Mega Drive. Any Sega Mega Drive children of the 80s and 90s here? Yeah, a few of you, yeah, some of you, maybe, it's not like the hedgehog. Play that, four o'clock till five o'clock. Then the next part of the ritual would continue, and Mrs. Carter would come up the stairs about ten past five, pretty much bang on the nail, and she would say the following words, Stephen, tea will be ready in five minutes' time. Philip, are you sure you wouldn't like to stay for tea? And I would next say the next part of the ritual, which was something like this, oh, thank you, Mrs. Carter, that's so kind. Well, I guess I, I, I could stay for tea if you're sure there's room for me. And she would say, I promise you, every time, Philip, there's always room at our table for you. And I would go down and sit downstairs, fill my face with their tea, and go home. Then the last part of the ritual would continue, which was about five to six, I'd get home. My mum would say, Philip, we're having tea just now. Come and sit down. And every time, I would sit there and have a second tea. Every time. <laughs> so my, my Thursdays, I fed and watered well. That happened pretty much every week, between the ages of about nine and 13. And then I'd go to football training and couldn't move for some reason. Mrs. Carter would always say to me, Philip, of course, there's room at our table. I can remember her saying those words. And there always was room at their table. And you can get a sense of this family, this church community. It's the same thing for everyone. Everyone's involved. Everyone's got a seat. Everyone's got a part to play. And as an elder team, we've kind of felt this, this phrase, there's, a room at the, there's room at the table, there's a seat at the table. It's got a bit of a prophetic edge for, to it for us as a church, which means that we think we're hearing something of the voice of God through that phrase. Because, partly because it's consistent with Scripture, which any prophetic edge comment is. How is it consistent with Scripture? Well, look, back at the passage, verse 43. Or came upon every soul, every soul, everyone was able to take a seat at the table and encounter the presence of God for themselves and know all as a result. You want that? Verse 46, they attended the temple praising God. How? Together. Not some keen Christians made sure they were there on a Sunday. It says day by day they were attending the temple praising God together. Everyone taking a seat at the table able to join in with worship and with praise. Every soul filled with awe. Notice in verse 43, like I've already mentioned, it says they were together and they had all things in common. Verse 45, they're prepared to sell their stuff and give away the proceeds to, quotes, all as any had need. Verse 46, they are daily in and out of each other's homes sharing food. In that instance, everyone seems to have a seat at the table, literally. 
There seems to be a seat at each other's family table for this kind of daily sharing of food, as well as a kind of temple experience of more overt worship. Everyone able to have a seat at a table. You could sum it up by saying, in this first church in Jerusalem, in the first century, everyone had a seat at the Sunday family table, temple worship in their language, and everyone had a seat at each other's home family table. The Sunday family table, the home family table. Let me just give a couple of uh, implications and applications, if you like, for that. To do that, I'll take a slight risk. They do so never work with children, what do I say, children, animals, and... Children, animals. Okay, well, I'm not working with them, but I'm working with some props. So, lads, could you just bring on this little table for me? Um, I've set you up to fail a bit by putting glasses of wine, so maybe you want to take those off. Uh, if you just bring this table over here, and we'll all watch. Um, but I'm going to need a few volunteers, which I haven't done for a long time, and I can see some of you visibly recoiling in your seat at the thought of coming up. I'm going to need a few people, and all I'm going to ask of you is that you would literally grab a chair, come and take a seat at this table, and you may get to eat something. That's it. So, hands up. Who's going to come? One. Mecca. Two. Yeah, Pete. Christy. That's four. And I just need uh, one chair at the end. That's kind of... You can leave that free. Two chairs on either side. Oh, I need two more chairs if possible. Would you be able to fetch me, Murray? Would you be able to fetch me two more, two more chairs? This is not a great example. There's a seat at the table for you, except there's not. <laughs> um, so in a minute, hopefully, a couple of uh, chairs will come back. So here's what I want to try and um, illustrate by this, and we'll just see how it how it goes on. In terms of the Sunday family table. Thank you very much, Dan. One at the end, and one at the end would be great. It seems to me that these, this early church community, when they got together for what's called temple worship, my point is they were all able to bring something to the table, to contribute, to worship and praise together. And that, I think, is more and more our heart as a church, is that when we come on a Sunday for this moment together, it's not a spectator sport, but I want you to think about it as taking a seat at the family table together. So when we come in, we come and take a seat. And we then when we take a seat, of course, like any family table, we, can, we bring our own personhood, we bring our own contributions. I've deliberately left this seat spare because I'm imagining God taking his seat here. Which might sound a bit weird, but it's not weird because that's the nature of what a church gathering is. We're expecting the presence of God. So we want the Father to take his seat at the table. We're going to give him the headspace at the table and we're going to be seeking to enjoy the Father in worship and in teaching because we're devoted to his word and his presence. And because we're taking a seat with the Father, we should expect to hear from him, shouldn't we? If we're his children and he's our father, he loves to give us good gifts and to speak to us and he's invited to take a seat at the table, not just stay as a spectator sport, we should expect to hear from him. Do you? When we come on a Sunday, do we expect to hear from the father personally, corporately? And if we're doing that, is it not possible that as Pete hears from the father, he might not just hear things for himself, he might hear things for, for Jason and for Christy and for Emeka. And so we want to have the expectation that when you take a seat and you commune with the Father over the meal of corporate worship, that as you're chewing on his word and drinking in, in the, the, what's the uh, biblical analogy, the living waters of the Holy Spirit, then we should be hearing from him and building one another up. I know Jason loves to eat, so he's ready, he's hungry, he wants to be, he wants to be fed, but he's going to be fed even more. Cost me £1.25 each, those croissants, <laughs> Kingston Market just now. 
He's ready to eat. But in order to be fed in the Sunday temple, the worship context, God has designed it so that it isn't just Pete and the Father communing with each other. God has designed it that Pete would hear from the Father and, and, and bring something of the Father's heart and the voice and feed Jason and Christy and Emeka. So we've got a part to play. But I want you to notice that there's a spare seat over here. And that's not because I forgot to bring a fifth person up. There's always a seat at the table. So you may come along and think, I, I don't even know if this thing is true. I'm only here because someone kept inviting me. Or because they seem to serve croissants. There's a seat at the table for you. You might have been away from, from, uh, from church for years and years. There's a seat at the table for you here. It says in the, in, the, in the passage in Acts 2, people were added to their number day by day. They're not a closed shop. Always making room at the table. Doors are open, deliberately. That's a deliberate sign. I'm glad that Mike is standing there. We need people who are particularly by the open door. Both literally, physically, but also spiritually. So there's always a seat at the table. You might, I haven't prayed out for years. I haven't got a loud voice. Well, either come and use the microphone, or just shout a bit louder. There's a seat at the table for you. We need to hear from you. The family needs to be fed by you. Well, I don't know very much Bible. Well, it's here. You can read it. And you can just pray out. Thank you, God. You're true. You're real. You're good. I want to know you more. Amen. What do we all say? Amen. Agree. So on Sundays, I want there to be more and more of that expectation and atmosphere. Our doors are open. We're not a closed shop. We've got our eyes on Kingston. People who might come in with all kinds of different worldviews and thoughts and ideas and objections and they're welcome. We make space. And once we're here, we expect to hear from God and to feed and build each other up. And so the way we're doing that is how Jason and Ross led us this morning a little bit in terms of worship, to free space, to pray out from where you're at. You do need a loud voice, I guess, in here so that we can hear you and we can't be fed by you unless we hear you. So if you haven't got a loud voice, that's okay. Come use the microphone. And then as you're hearing more kind of prophetic things, words of knowledge, tongues, and prophetic songs and so on, I think the microphone's a great place to use that. Every family has its cultures. Every family has its kind of um, ways of doing things. Ours at the moment is we use the microphone and then we also pray from the floor. And we have someone like Jason this morning who's acting as a bit of a spiritual father or Becca as a spiritual mother, helping us to come to the table, to take our seat, to hear from the father, to know what we're doing, to not eat the croissant before it's time, that kind of thing. <laughs> So that's how we're trying to do things at the moment. Thank you very much. Could you go sit down? What's left of what's left of bereft of my table here? But did you also notice they're not just worshiping and praising God together in, in the temple, are they? Somewhere else, just tell me where where else are they meeting? In homes. Okay? So I need four more. Need four more volunteers. And as you can see, it's a pretty easy gig. Four more volunteers. Come and take a seat at the table. Thank you, Jamie, Rachel, Ben, Dan. Did you notice in the passage, this is, I was digging into this this week, as you can tell, and the, the, the breaking of bread, I think, gets mentioned twice. The breaking of bread gets mentioned in verse 42, and then again, again mentioned in verse 46. And if you read the text, it's hard to tell whether the breaking of bread means sharing the Lord's Supper, as we're doing at the end of this service this morning, if we do it once a month, or whether it means eating food. 
because it means both, basically. That's what it's getting at, is they're doing both. They're, they're sharing the Lord's Supper, and they're often doing so, as Jesus did, in the context of a, eating a normal meal. So there's a fluidity, is what I'm saying, between their home and their Sunday experience. It's not weird for them to gather in a home and to um, b- break bread and praise God together. Without getting obsessed with the... Um, the grammatical makeup of the language and how Greek translates to English. It fascinates me that in verse 47, look at it if you can, it won't come up on the screen. It says, or verse 46 says, day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. And I'm like, well, surely it's, you go to the temple and you worship and you praise God, and then you go to your homes and you do the food. But Luke writes, the praising God becomes at the end. In other words, they're praising God in both places. He's like, well, it's just, there's no demarcation particularly. Day by day, temple worship uh, in their homes. There's a bit of breaking of bread and communion in the temple, some of it in their homes. There's some praising God in the temple, and there's some of that in their homes, and it floats up all in the end. It comes down as a beautiful thing because everyone has a seat at the table. So the home is a really special thing, I think, for this local church community. And we kind of get that, and we say, okay, fine, that's where we have life groups. And once a week, our temple worship will become a meeting in the home and we might break bread and, and be devoted to the apostles' uh, teaching and, and, and pray and, and be empowered by the Spirit to see signs and wonders. And that's great. And I want to, again, if you're brand new here, the, the best way, the main way to be known and loved and to grow here, wherever you're at, brand new Christian, not sure if you're a Christian, 30-year Christian, the best way to grow in the context of being known and loved is in a life group. When I say in a life group, I mean by attending one. <laughs> I, I get it, I get it. Busy lives, sh- shift work, foreign travel, all kinds of things, health, loads of things. I, I get that. But, but my job is to bring to you a, a, a clear vision, all things being well, on a good day with a fair wind, being part of a life group and actually being there more often than not is the way to be known and loved and to grow, to know God and to be able to make God known, to explore and be able to engage, to be empowered and to encounter the presence of God. It happens here in the home at the table. I love Pete and Christie's life group that me and Carol are in. And every week they say the same thing. They say, we're eating at 7 o'clock. You're welcome to join us. And then we'll begin uh, studying the word and praying at 8 o'clock. They've made it very clear there's always a seat at their table. I haven't been yet at 7 o'clock. <laughs> I've only come at 8. But last week I went to 8 and I was really hungry. So I had some of their bread. Just like old times with Stephen Carter, Mrs. Carter's mum. <laughs> because they've made it clear there's always a seat at the table. Physically, practically, spiritually. You guys can start eating something if you want. Like, but by that I mean some fruit and a croissant. We need to treat the, the Lord's Supper with the appropriate uh, reverence. But it's not just about that one time in the week. It does say day by day, doesn't it? This is we need your Bibles to look at them so you can check that what I'm saying is true. It does say day by day. That's, that's obviously a contextual thing to a degree, first century Jerusalem, but be careful. In our, we don't go sort of slightly pompous modern Westerners and say, well, of course, they, they weren't very busy in those days. They just sort of went out to work for a bit and, and uh, shepherded some sheep and got some water from the well and, and then sang some song in the temple. I'm not sure about that. There's some busy people working long hours, raising big families dealing with all kinds of contextual cultural pressures of we're, we're Jews in the, in the Roman Empire and, and, and now we're Christians and, and there's a, this, this Roman person's a Christian and I'm a Jewish Christian. And they've got pressures in their life and busyness. Jesus is the busiest person to ever walk the earth. And you get, what was he always doing? It's not a rhetorical question. What was he always doing? Eating. Always eating. That's why Jason thinks he's growing in the image of Christ all the time. <laughs> he's always eating. 
So I think there's a clear challenge. It's a clear, not, it's not even a challenge. It's, a, it's, like a, what would it, it's like a dream. What would it be like? Imagine. Imagine what it would be like if there was something of that in this church family. That we weren't just saying, well, I'll see you on Sunday between 10.30 or 10.15 ideally and, and, and 12 o'clock, 12.30. And if I'm doing well and got in my diary, I might see you on a Tuesday evening. What about if there was, just imagine for a moment, if there was always a seat at your table and the door was always open. That's what I've started saying to my little girl. She doesn't understand a word I'm saying, but I'm just saying. Easy when you sit down, there's a seat at the table for somebody else and the door is always open. Not to freak her out, there's no security. <laughs> because I wanted to get used to the idea that it's not just about her. And she should expect people who she doesn't know in the safe stewardship of her parents to take a seat alongside her and for her to share what she has and to bring a contribution. So question, is there a seat at your table at home? Here's one way, I think, to help with that. And I'm, I'm not going to mention them by name because it embarrasses them, but I was helped by this by some people in this church family who were uh, good enough to be honest and clear. And we were saying, what about if we were to knock the dinner party culture a little bit on the head? Now, I'm all for dinner parties. Love a good dinner party. Feed me a really nice three-course meal with lots of good wine, some good wine, and I'll be happy. So I'm not knocking dinner parties, not like anti-Kingston and South West London, quite the opposite. But the problem about a dinner party culture is there's a bit of pressure that goes with that because you have to put a date in the diary six months in advance and you have to think, what are we going to cook? And if you're not very good at cooking, it's quite a bit of pressure. If you haven't got much money, how are you going to afford it? So instead of saying, listen, would you like to come for dinner on the 14th of November? What about if we got used to saying, next Tuesday, we're having dinner at six, would you like to join us? Which sounds like a, the same thing almost, but actually it's quite a different thing. We're doing this thing anyway, but there's a seat at our table. Do you want to come? Now, for Carol and I, we're not particularly gifted at cooks. We live in a small two-bed flat. We're not, we're not great at the whole hospitality thing, but we've learned a little bit that just by saying, well, we're going to have some food at X, my little girl probably will throw something on the, on, on the wall. Would you like to come and do that as well? <laughs> People do, weirdly. And that begins to help us a little bit. I think it helps us a little bit, doesn't it? Especially if we, if we might, might be single and think, well, it's, it's just me. It's all right. Have you got a table? Is there an extra chair? I remember Jason, again, I'm just picking you out, not to embarrass you, but he, he told a great story last year when he preached on this hospitality topic brilliantly. And told the story of uh, a brilliant young man called Steve Delderfield, and many of you will know, he's a wonderful member of this church for a number of years uh, before he got married and legged it off to East London. And uh, he was single for all of, his, all of his time here, and I think I've told the story right, that he invite, uh, invited Stocks. Were you single at the time as well? Probably. And he invited, invited him over for, for a meal, and, they, and Jason got, he's, Jason's a brilliant cook, so there's a bit of pressure having him over. And he got him over, and as I'm, I think I'm right in saying, presented on the table was simply a bottle of wine, and a French stick. Is that right? Some and some cheese. That's it. But he said, and I think I'm quoting you accurately, that was one of your most memorable experiences, and I'm putting words in your mouth here, but of being known and loved, of sitting with somebody, of sharing of hearts, of being built up, of being encouraged, probably even challenged as well. That's the place where the challenges can happen. The Bible's really clear, King's Church. By being known and loved, we're also talking about exhorting, maybe even rebuking, or even admonishing can't be known unless we're vulnerable. That includes bringing the stuff that we find hard and difficult in our lives. And over a meal, over a table, 
where you're known and loved and welcome because there's room for you. That's a great place to have some of the more challenging conversations. And they're the conversations that we grow from. Come on, put your hand up if that's true. The challenging conversations are the ones that cause us to grow. Okay, and if you're brand new here, I haven't like brainwashed these people to say, when I put my hand up, you might. That's an authentic description of what it means to genuinely be known and loved. But you've got to take some steps to, to do that. Making, seat, making a space at your own table, making, coming and joining someone else at their table, being appropriately vulnerable. I'm not talking about sharing your whole dirty linen through the whole of the church, but that isn't our problem, King's Church. We don't have people going around just sharing every intimate detail of their life with everybody else, as far as I'm aware. If you want to do that, don't. Because that doesn't help the church family either. So, but that's not our challenge, I don't think. I think our challenge is busyness, I think it's vulnerability, I think it's authenticity, I think it's making a space at the table, at our table, and I think it's taking a step at somebody else's table. And why not break bread when you do it? We, we, just, we haven't started doing it yet, but we've been talking about it. Why do we wait for this great formal occasion? Now, there's something really good in a reverent, right approach to the Lord's table. And if you are not yet a Christian, we always say, we're so glad you're here looking into these things. But we also want to adhere to the apostles' teaching. And it's clear that, that this meal, this uh, moment of bread and wine is for believers to re- repeat and affirm their, their faith and gratitude in Christ's blood and broken, bre- broken body. So we say if you're not a believer, we'd ask you not to take uh, communion as yet. But to remain within the church family, to explore, to ask, and to stay at, keep a seat at the table. So it's important that we share communion with appropriate reverence. We're talking about the, the shed blood of Jesus Christ broken body of Jesus Christ at the same time Jesus did it over a meal with his friends reclining at a table and it seems like this early church that was just natural for them there was a fluidity they didn't wait for a formal church moment for some pastor bloke to stand up and help us to do it they just got used to doing it and I tell you what when you break bread with a fellow believer in Christ over a uh, over a meal that's a special thing Hearts are opened. Hearts are filled up with the truth and the goodness of Christ. Confession and repentance can happen over the context of communion. It's a special time. So if you only take away from this message that we're going to knock on the head the dinner, dinner party culture a little bit, that an Englishman's home is not his castle, at least not in this church family, that there's, seat at my, there's a seat at my table, and when people come and take a seat, I'm going to break bread with them, that would be a great application from this sermon thank you so much guys could you sit down I'm actually not doing too bad for time I'm just going to close really in a moment so um, Bobby and Mary would you mind just I guess resetting this table in some respects so that just the communion stuff is left I say stuff wine and bread um I'll, I'll decount the wine in a moment, but let's take the fruit off and the tables away. And then the gluten-free uh, bread and non-alcoholic wine can come next to it. That would be amazing. Jesus said in Revelation, or in Revelation 3.20, or, or the Apostle John heard Jesus say to him in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me.
That is the invitation of Jesus all the time. It's always there, always waiting, always knocking. If you're a a believer in Christ, this is a great moment to affirm what he's done to make that possible. If you're not yet a believer in Christ, we'd be really happy for you to take this for the first time if you're opening the door to Jesus Christ for the first time and saying, I believe your death was for me, you rose for me. I want to learn what it is to follow you and live for you. He's there, ready to come and sit with you and eat with you. Isn't it interesting? That's the language he uses. Ready to come in and give you loads of stuff to do and rules to obey. I'm ready to come in and eat with you. And as you eat with me and commune with me for the rest of the life, you'll find yourself living a radically new and different life. That's also the continuing dynamic of Jesus. And communion is a great time. This gathering is a great time to, to use communion, not just to thank him, that's important, of course, and to remember, but to eat, to, to share fellowship with him, unity with him. There's all kinds of theology about what communion is. I'm not going to get into it, but it certainly something happens of unity and fellowship and, 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 and joining again with Jesus when we take what symbolizes his blood and his bread. So do that in a moment as well. I'm also aware that there's loads of us who've been... Who, who went to do some prayer and prophecy training recently in Mark and Kate's home? Who was there for that? Brilliant. I think about 40 people did that. Just got freshly trained up and envisioned to be praying for each other. The same mandate. When we come together, it's not like some pastor guy does the praying. It's every believer in Christ is filled with the Spirit and ready to contribute and take a seat at the table. So I would love in a moment, I'm just going to hand over to you for this bit, uh, to help to make a space for us to pray for each other. So maybe we'll share communion and then we will, then we will do that. And I would like us, again, every, every family has its healthy boundaries. So for us, in a corporate setting, the people that we're going to ask to pray and lay hands on anybody that wants to be prayed for are those that have been trained, are those that have been envisioned. That's a really healthy way of having a healthy family. Healthy family isn't a free-for-all. Healthy family is one where the, the mums and dads cultivate health and safety and security as well. So if you're yet to be freshly trained, uh, speak to me and we can work out a way how to do that. That's how we're going to do things on a Sunday. But it's great, isn't it? We're not going to have a prayer team with a badge necessarily. Nothing bad about the badges. But what we're trying to get at is that if you are a believer in Christ, you are entitled to receive the Holy Spirit and to become a minister of that Holy Spirit to anybody else that wants to. So in a moment, let's pray for each other after we've celebrated communion. Let me just finish with this. Um, Ross, would you be able to join me just to help us kind of reflect in a moment? I just came across this poem. Um, See, look at me growing, and it's not a sporting analogy. I've got a poem. It's a real one. But it just spoke to me a bit. It's by someone called Charles Roby. And uh, he wrote this about a century ago, I think. Come home, my child, and from the evil stand be blessed. There's always room at the table. The road was long and dusty, and your weary soul is rusty. There's always room at the table. Too long now, you've been dreary, as life's journey has been weary. There's always room at table. The feast is now made able. Draw a chair and sit at my table. There's always room at the table. The spread is ready for basking. The banquet ready for asking. There's always room at the table. The invitation is waiting the grateful. God's grace is always faithful. There's always room at the table. 
Redemption's plan is complete for all who by faith will answer the call. There's always room at the table. The cross still has room for one. Love's deed was eternally done. There's always room at the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that if we are in Christ, you have not only forgiven us, removed all guilt and shame and punishment from us, but you have fully reconciled us to yourself. And through Jesus, you've united us to him and made us brothers and sisters of Jesus and children of the Father, full of the Spirit. We thank you for the family of God, that through Jesus' broken body and shed blood, we have been able through sheer grace to take our seat at. And I thank you that the church is designed to embody that. A family of believers, united not not just to God, but to each other. And I pray you would help us as a local church to make strides and to grow and to be fruitful in this area to have a fluidity in our Sunday home experience to know what it is to share meals and over that context to share the truth of the word to see each other filled with the spirit to break bread together to share dreams and hopes and fears and broken hearts together and to know the unity of Christ as we do so. Would you teach us how to do that, Heavenly Father? In Jesus' name, amen.